0: Welcome to episode 8 of Coffee and Circuses. This week on the show I'm talking to Sadie Watson, Project Officer for Museum of London Archaeology. Not only has Sadie had a long career in the world of commercial archaeology and serves as a council member for the Charter's Institute for Archaeologists, but a couple of years ago also obtained her PhD in Applied Archaeology. Today we're talking about the relationship between commercial archaeology and academia, how commercial archaeology has changed over the years, tackling sexism on site... And, of course, when she directed the Bloomberg excavations in London uncovered the famous writing tablets, and I've also seen something called the Temple of Mithras, sounds a bit weird, return to its original location and open to the public. So, thanks for joining me. Don't forget, you can subscribe via iTunes or Spotify. And given that this is going out on Christmas Eve, I just want to quickly say that The Muppets Christmas Carol remains the best Christmas movie ever, and I will never accept any different now, on with the show. Not out in sight now before Christmas, or are you...?
1: I'm in and out, actually. I've got a few small things on the go. So there's a, there's a job in the city which is starting off being a watching brief. Um, and we'll hopefully progress to evaluation and maybe a little excavation late spring, early summer next year. Okay. Just north of the Forum, but it's it's under a really modern building, so there's not much left. But we're hoping for little bits and bobs. Okay.
0: What kind of periods? Um, uh, anyway, well, Roman. <laughs> only,
1: only Roman. I okay. mean, anything later will have completely been truncated away. And the likelihood is that the only Roman stuff we've got is the bases of deep features, um, pits and wells and things. And the likelihood, unfortunately, is that It'll only be Rome early, really early, perhaps, which is a good thing. But then you, it's nice to have the full phasing, obviously, if you can get it. Yeah. But it'll be really truncated, so we'll see.
0: Do you like it when you can just be in the office, though, over winter?
1: Yes, I do, um, definitely. It's much better to be in the office over winter. Although it's nice to have something on the go as well, so you can just come yeah. in, you know, you can pop into site on the way to work some some mornings, and that sort of breaks it up, really, because being in the office all the time does get a bit much.
0: yeah. Thing, the thing is nowadays though the, with the weather we tend to get the snow around what like March well, February exactly. so you yeah, think exactly. you think over Christmas you're like oh I, I'm inside so I'll miss yeah. the worst of it and then suddenly nowadays the weather the bad weather seems to come along later and yeah I remember sh- shoveling snow out of trenches exactly
1: and you can never plan with archaeology either because it all depends on what the contractors want to do and they they work through all weathers so we just have to keep going but the one I'm on in the city at the moment is in a basement so it doesn't really matter currently whether it's raining or snowing it's inside.
0: Is there a lot of work going on in the city at the moment then? I mean because obviously with commercial it it can be those peaks and troughs relating to building activity so is there is there quite a lot going on right now? I mean obviously there's the big high speed rail link as well is there much going on actually in the city itself
1: no there isn't um we've we're in a bit of a lull um happened for a year or so actually the the last big field work we did was crossrail related at liverpool street obviously that was roman and then we did a waterfront excavation as well and we've got bits and bobs around the periphery but nothing nothing in the core of the city at the moment no i think everyone's holding their breath for, for the b word yeah next year, and we're going to see what happens after that
0: yeah so it the high-speed rail link that's going on.
1: Yeah, high-speed on site now. Um, for that, that's at Euston, St James's. Okay. And that's not Roman. That's no. That's really, really recent, actually. Post-med. Yeah. yeah. So, How many years?
0: That's supposed to. That's going to be a long.
1: Project. Well, the one, the the St James' one will be finished next year at some point. Um, because they're putting in a station there, so they need to get us out of the way before they start that. But the whole fieldwork for the whole of HS2, I think, is a couple of years. Yeah.
0: Okay. And there's
1: all kinds of stuff in on the rural sites between here and Birmingham, obviously. So there's loads of work.
0: Because mm. that's not just Mola, is it? Is that is that a joint project? With-
1: yeah, the one um, Mola are working with Headland, who are based in Scotland but have offices uh, across England as well. MHI, uh, Mola Headland Infrastructure, it's called, and we're working with them <clears throat> on on our bits of HS2. And then there's another whole joint venture with PCA and Oxford, um, and there's another. There's there's lots of different units working on it, yeah.
0: Wow. It's Just, gonna be is it like the biggest commercial project that's happened in
1: Apparently like, well, in yeah, ever.
0: Ever. Wow. Well, at least I'll be work there at least. Yeah, well
1: exactly, yeah. And it's but it's one of these odd ones that infrastructure quite often is that you do the field work as part of one package and then all the post excavation and analysis is tendered out separately. Okay. So the people that dig the sites might not get to do the um, analysis on them, they'll do the assessment the initial bit of number crunching and working out what exactly you have, then you might end up handing all that over to someone else, that's what happened on the Olympics and various parts of CTRL, lots of infrastructure projects, they do it that way mm. so it's a bit odd
0: Yeah, so because for you we might as well just dive straight into it the Bloomberg Mithraeum project that's been like the big thing for the last few years, right?
1: Yeah, we started on site in on 2011 yeah, and we were on site for a couple of years, on and off, with varying numbers of people, up to 55, I think, at the, the, the height of that project, in 2012-13. Um, and then, yeah, we're still working on the publication and the analysis and the, the working out what exactly it was that we found on that one. So that'll that's going to go on for another few months, certainly.
0: Yeah. The, I mean, the project itself, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm right about this but I always found it was quite unusual in the sense of the support that Bloomberg gave it I mean would you say that for for an archaeological project like that that a commercially funded one that the level of support they provided was unusual or do you think that it's not well it wasn't unusual
1: (laughs) Um, no I mean it is unusual but the thing to remember is that the development control aspects of that project. So our bits of archaeology, the bits where we dug stuff in advance of it being destroyed. So the temple is not part of that project. Yeah. We did all the park apps and the the new entrance to the underground and and all the lift pits and that kind of thing. And that was designated under the construction contract which Sir Robert McAlpine managed on behalf of Bloomberg. So Bloomberg didn't have anything to do with it for the first year and a half perhaps, apart from funding it obviously. And then gradually, when when we found all this amazing stuff and the importance of the archaeology became clear and the neighbours started to become interested, Bloomberg really quickly actually took it on as a positive aspect to their project. And then they they funded a public engagement programme as part of the planning condition. So they funded lunchtime talks and um, interpretation and loads of community tours of the site and that kind of thing. So it was really unusual. And it's a, the, the best thing about it, actually, is that it was unusual, uh, exactly as you say, because it was a, a normal construction project. But actually the client spotted the value of the archaeology on that project and really ran with it from quite an early stage. Mm.
0: Do you think that is something that hopefully we'll see more of in the future? I mean, I guess it is going to vary site to site, isn't it? But understanding the, the value of the archaeology... I don't know, in my experience, that you know, obviously... People have to get construction project done, and sometimes the archaeology is very much kind of takes a second, yeah. takes a backseat very yeah. much to the main construction project. Um, is there is there a hope now that that whole project? <clears throat> Has set an example of what can be done with the archaeology. I mean, it was a very unique and unusual site in itself, so I don't know yeah. how much it will do, but it
1: was unusual. And, and um, one of the lucky things about that project was that a lot of the archaeology was really well preserved, so it's really easy to show photos of preserved coins or preserved metalwork, um, preserved timber buildings, and for the public to easily identify what they are. Normally, a, a rusty lump of something, even though it might be really special to us, is not going to be easily identified, interpreted to non-archaeologists. So, so we were lucky with that, certainly. But the other thing that made a massive difference was that there's a statutory requirement on the planning condition for Bloomberg to fund this public engagement. So the Corporation of London... Cleverly, Not only did they re- require that they funded the rescue archaeology, which is what we did, and the mithraeum reconstruction, which is what you were involved in, but also this public engagement thing, and they had to do it as part of their planning condition. And that is the key, really. I mean, I'm not saying they were forced to do it because they went way beyond the minimum that they would have been forced, in inverted commas, to do. But the fact that they were encouraged at the beginning to consider it as a, as a thing they were obliged to do really helped, I think. And I know that curatorial archaeologists are really... Um, they're under the cosh, obviously there's no money and lots of counties don't even have that kind of level of coverage. In the City of London, of course, we do and that's why another reason why we're really lucky because the Corporation of London are really hot on the value of the archaeology in their city, our city, and why people should know about it. And that's why the planning condition was bomb. So a combination of statutory requirement, really, yeah, <laughs> and other things.
0: Yeah, what Was that project one of the best that you've ever been involved in in terms of the quality of archaeology and in terms of what was found there, is does it does it actually rank for you actually among the best or as the best or I mean I guess it's hard to compare well
1: it's so. definitely top three <laughs> top three <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so it was an amazing project and I think the field work was the most fun I've had on site ever in terms of the consistent discovery really quite often you go for days on a site you know and no one really finds much and you're just ploughing away digging stuff And on on that project, everybody found a nice thing most days. And if you didn't, then you knew you'd find one the next day, so it was fine, you could keep going till the next day. And and we had a roof for when the weather got really bad, which helped hugely. And being in the City of London is always an exciting place to work. I think busy, stimulating. The archaeology was very deep, so you, you got the you knew that you were going deep into the layers of time because we were physically deep below the street. We were 12 metres below street level, so you already feel that you're going deep into time. So, yeah, it was a really fantastic project Bill.
0: Yeah, I've still got my picture somewhere on my phone of the coin of Nero Yeah, I found. <laughs> I, still, I still rock it out for my yeah. uh, for my undergraduates. Like, Look how cool this is, because it's actually literally like a gold coin yeah, as well, yeah. and you can see his, like, podgy face yeah. on it. But, yeah, no, God, it was... I still...
1: I learned so much on that project about finds because they were coming out of the ground in the state, exactly like you do describe, and we had Michael Marshall, our Roman Fines specialist, working on site with us because he was a bit short of work, which was actually the best thing ever because he would be able to identify and date things as they came out of the ground. Yeah. So I think to have a specialist on site when you're digging up stuff like that was a real bonus.
0: Yeah, no, because I, I, I remember, actually, I remember I think it was that point where it was shifting from the... Far corner on the mm. side where Cannon Street is, up to the, the other side where the Mithraeum now mm. is, and there was kind of that sort of, that's during that shift over period. It was sort of like trying to find jobs to do. But I remember at one point being at this like kind of two tables set up next to each other with Mike, who was going through some finds, and just being like, "What does that mean? What does that like?" Yeah. And it was it was just very interesting just to chat to him, mm. like the stuff that you learned as you went along, yeah, and definitely. actually having the, that that archaeology on site and being able to I mean, because one of the things I talk about with people that I always find a bit mm. odd is sometimes when I go to museums I see stuff behind like glass cases or whatever mm. and I'm like oh that's interesting but it's not quite tangible in the same way as it is when you actually find it mm. and being able to chat to somebody like that and just have his knowledge and have him saying like well this and this and this and this and actually be able to hold it and feel it mm. as well and ha- having just come out of the ground as well that's I think that's something that really sticks with you but um, say,
1: yeah, so, and with him as well, I think,
0: oh, because, yeah. because
1: the context that things come out of, obviously he doesn't always, well, rarely, rarely we get to see, so for him to see where they're, where they're being found, whether they're in the riverbed or whether they're in a dump or whether they're in a primary deposit within a building, was massively helpful to him as well.
0: Yeah. Do you look back and have any kind of particular find that stands out for you, or? I mean, I'm mean, actually like the, the, the assemblage is so vast that you know, I yeah. guess it is hard to, to pick anything. But was there anything that really stood out?
1: Two things. One of them was the tiny amber amulet that I didn't find. One of our guys on site found it, the size of your little fingernail, made of amber in the shape of a gladiator's helmet, mm. um, and with a, a loop in, in the back, probably to hold to be suspended around your neck. And because of the size of it, and the fact that it's made of amber and the gladiator's helmet is a kind of protective, amuletic idea. They think maybe it was worn by a child who was okay. ill or in, a, in a, some other way needed extra protection, which I think is really special because you know that we don't often find much evidence of children specifically on site, although we know they were there. So that was a really special thing. And God knows how he saw it because it's absolutely tiny and it came up in a, in a shovel full of dark mud. But the other thing is the writing tablets and I, I remember... We were visited by colleagues from another rival commercial (laughs) organisation, let's say. One day we were going for a pint afterwards and I said, come and have a look around site. So they came and had a look and they they discovered me counting my writing tablets into bags you know. and there's looks on their faces and I thought, yeah, actually this is special and I am completely, you get used to that sort of stuff very quickly when you're on site, finding nice things all the time. But to have a handful of Roman writing tablets Mm. was a memorable thing, certainly.
0: I remember showing people the the writing tablet, like all images of the writing mm. tablet, where it's got is Londinium actually yeah. written on it, or Londinio. Londinio, yeah. yeah, yeah, and saying that because that's the first mm. time it's actually written by mm. the hand of of a Londoner, mm. I guess. So it's I just find fascinating, and I think I guess for anybody particularly that's from London as well, it must be. It's one of those things you're just like, wow. I mean, like for anybody, it's like wow, but I don't know. It's very. It does kind of feel a little bit like reaching across the centuries yeah. almost. It's, yeah, it's... Uh,
1: exactly, and, it, and it's an address label, that one, so it's written to Magontius in Londinio, and because it has Londinio on it, apparently that means that it probably wasn't written in London, it was written somewhere else, and they knew who Magontius was because it's quite a rare name, so it comes to him in London. And there's other, there's other address labels amongst them that are just written to tell us she lives opposite Julius de Cooper and that's how they that's the address, that's how, it's really interesting I think to know how people were referring to where they lived in a town that was really busy and teeming mm. with people and houses and everything and they could still have a way of identifying someone's house
0: Yes, where well, I've been teaching around Britain over the last term we've talked about the Warwick tablets and also the Vinderlander tablets mm. and the Bath curse tablets as well and they're those rare insights where you do it becomes a lot more real, yeah. Um, when you when you've got like a finds assemblage of like I don't know animal bone or even things like tools and stuff like that, mm. like it's all very like interesting. But to actually have people that have like, you have their names, you have yeah. that kind of little insight into their lives about things like they. You're saying like where they live or how they work out where Mm. people live, and to some extent things like because there's talk about beer in there as well. Yes, quite a lot.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, exactly. Um, But I just those those kind of things I find just uh, is where it really Mm. comes alive a lot more. Yeah, I think that's such a good thing to actually use an example to to teach students with. But I showed them the video that's on YouTube about the writing tablets because. So, uh, Richard Tomlin. Mm. Was, I just think that like, that kind of ability to decipher mm. it, as like, because I think he says in that that he does a lot of, or maybe I'm getting this confused with something else. He does a lot of quizzes and like, yes, word, and that it's that kind of joining the dots in your brain. And I was trying to explain to my students that you know you have this this sub. Area of study, or we in archaeology slash ancient history, which is epigraphy. But then to do something like the writing tablets is on another level yeah. because it's so fragmentary, and mm. there's like the various the way they can be reused as well because they're also the backing of, of where the tablet would be, correct? Or, or am I? They are. I think the wax tablets for that. Yeah, but. the the
1: wax tablets are reused barrel stays, which is also quite cool. They they brought wine in from from France or um, the Northern Alps, and um, they drank all the wine and dismantle the barrels and use the barrel staves for the writing tablets but Roger's other specialism actually really interestingly is Turkish carpets oh really which I know is bizarre but they also have messages in the form of them so the 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 way that they're woven will tell you things about where they're from or the owner or whatever so it's a similar but different interpretive process I guess Mm. He obviously has a very different, interesting kind of brain.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, you had to. I think you had to be. You had to be unique. Yeah. A unique brain. Yeah, in yeah. order to do that stuff, it is. It's not. It's certainly not a thing that the vast majority of people, I think, could take up. No. You need, you need such a close eye for detail mm. um, it's just. Yeah, I just. Yeah, it just blows my mind a little bit.
1: And also a really a really thorough knowledge of Latin. Oh yeah. In all its forms, because the handwriting is very variable as as everyone can imagine, obviously, but apparently the Latin because the linguists at Oxford had a good look at the the Latin on the tablets as well, and they say that they're all um, the Latin is really high quality, so there's they're speakers of latin they're they're users of latin in the, in their daily lives there's not much second language acquisition evidence amongst it oh, right. so it's that's really interesting because they're very romanized early London is a very Romanized society, and they're all writing, not all of them are writing, but the written Latin that we see on the tablets is a really high quality which is really interesting because okay. you'd think it was far more patchy and sketchy in a way wouldn't you but it yeah. wasn't
0: yeah because there were questions about the the bath tablets about mm. the, the the Latin there it does seem to be much more mm. it's not very really refined there's one way of putting it I was reading about those recently the idea that perhaps what it was was that people came in and actually somebody had to write it out on their behalf mm. and then but then they had to then copy the Latin because it doesn't seem to be that much in the way of yeah. repeating hands so it doesn't seem to be like a scribe that's necessarily employed, but there might be a scribe that's employed to do it, but they basically write it out. But in order for the curse to work on the tablet, it has to be the hand yeah. of the person that's casting the curse, uh, so they have to then copy it back out, which is why the Latin seems to be okay, but it can be a bit off in places. Yeah, yeah. It's very, yeah, those kind of insights is just because suddenly you start to build a much better picture of this whole exactly. kind of way things are, are working, not just from the person in the tablet, but the kind of yeah. context they live in. But alongside if I'm right, when we were when the Bloomberg excavation was going on and subsequently so thereafter the post-ex, you also were doing your PhD
1: part yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was the What was the focus of that?
1: The focus of that. Well, um, Which you now have congratulations? Thank the, you. Yeah, Doctor Watson. <laughs> it's worth it for that, honestly. Um, it was a part time one that I did. It's an applied archaeology PhD, so um, the majority seventy percent of the of the words, literally the word count was. On MOLA, my professional output, stuff that I'd already published, I was in the process of publishing. And then the, the, uh, the PhD aspect of that, really, was was critiquing the output from a professional such as myself. So I went back and looked at how the excavation methods and the analysis and the publication, um, whether they were effective, whether they contributed much to the knowledge about Rome in London. It was a reflexive idea, really, mm. I guess. Um, and it was the only university that did it was Lampeter. So I had to go a long way on the train now and Uh again for supervision and stuff. But um, yeah, it was really good. The opportunity to do something when you're working full time on your professional output actually is a really valuable thing, I think, for people like me. Yeah,
0: I can imagine. Mm. Yeah, because it is kind of crazy now. I mean, I talk talk to my students about this as well, how the sheer volume of output that we now have, Mm. particularly from commercial archaeology using the example of the Roman Rural Settlement Project yes. online where you can access, and the archaeological database, um, yeah. the archaeological data service, the yeah. ADS, yeah. yeah, the amount of grey literature that's just on there, mm. it's, just, it's just crazy. I remember I tried to sit down earlier this year and go through all the various temple sites in Britain from the Roman period, and you just don't even realise how many... Mm temple shrines have now been identified or obviously there's always that difficulty of possible temple shrines you can never quite be certain and mm. everything's ritual if we don't know what it is Yeah, yeah but um, yeah. it's you just go on there and you're just like wow like there's so many reports that are published now they're only like 10 pages long yeah. but the volume is just so expansive it's almost we're right at that point now much the same way I know that we're hitting that point where there's not enough space to store everything mm. anymore it's like what do we do with all this archaeology but it's it's, I, I don't know I don't, I don't know if you may feel the same but we're probably hitting that point where it is going to be almost impossible for the the academic side of things to keep up with the amount of that's being produced to yes. kind of synthesize that into anything
1: yeah and I think it would be one of the things that I, I came um, to later than my PhD actually but I wonder if if now companies like mola or whichever whichever part of the country you're working in should collaborate on a kind of annual roundup of a particular, Period of, um, yeah. of archaeology in that area. I don't know Roman Cambridge or whatever it would be. Bronze Age Cornwall. So that somebody who wants to think about Bronze Age Cornwall would know that for twenty eighteen there was one document they could look at, and all the great literature would be recorded in one. I don't know how you'd fund it or who would do it, but I think that would be really helpful because, like you, I've I've often even in Mola we do um, desk based assessments before development and finding. The resources and the data and stuff can actually be quite difficult and that's just in London where mm. we do have really good digital SMR and HR records and things. It's far sketchier in other parts of the country and I think things probably do get missed because of that, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. How do you feel over the years the, the relationship between the world of commercial archaeology and, and academia? Has, do you feel that there is a growing kind of coming together of it? Do you think they're still quite separate or, or have they have they, have they been separate and now it's less so? I mean, what, what are your kind of views on it? I mean, I don't, from my perspective, there seems to be a move at the moment to do more in terms of integrating commercial work into into the academic side of things, like university-based things. Like, you know, at track last year, there was the session on, on that, about commercial work and its place in academia. I mean, what's your kind of views overall in that?
1: I agree with you. I think that there are moves now, quite positive moves, to bring us closer together. And I think we probably were closer together in... In the 70s and 80s, lots of more people came and did voluntary work in the holidays from university, that kind of thing. Lots of people who worked in London in the 80s ended up at universities as lecturers. Martin minutes a DUA digger. There, there was a lot more crossover, I think, opportunity for people to do that until this professionalism really became a huge obsession for us. Yeah. Um, and it became that you you were digging on site and you were paid to do that all year in university and you were do, you were paid to do that. But I think that now we are moving together again and there are lots of collaborative things going on between units and universities local to them or period links whatever we have links with reading now Mm. for the roman finds and cambridge for various other things and other universities for different periods so it's very positive i think
0: yeah i mean i kind of feel that if for example you're you're the mindset you want to carry on at university and you want to get on to do an ma phd etc in archaeology I think at least getting some form of commercial experience is quite mm, handy, at definitely. least, and vice versa, to to have that kind of, I mean, obviously most people that work in commercial sector have been to university, mm. but having that kind of understanding of the context of what you're digging, I mean, it's not always going to be the case, obviously, you know, if you go to university and mainly study Roman archaeology, and then you're on a Bronze Age site, yeah. it's going to, but in any case, like, particularly from the perspective, though, of going through the academic process, I think having some experience at least in the commercial world puts you in good standing because you understand the process of how it all works, yeah. like excavation works. And also in some respects, things like the limitations of excavation,
1: yeah.
0: how certain things survive and others don't, what affects that. Also how you know, excavation works in terms of things like funding, for mm. example. Uh, and it gives you a, a much better grounding in that. Talking to, before to people about how you know to be an archaeologist, you don't have to do excavation. There yeah. are many different types of, of archaeologists about Kent like for example Ellen, Ellen Swift is a very good example Ellen doesn't she's not very interested in in going out and doing excavations Mm. now but her contribution to the world of Roman archaeology is massive um, particularly in terms of small finds and I think sometimes there is a lack of understanding from people outside of the world of archaeology and sometimes even people within archaeology as well that simply archaeology is just about purely Mm. digging a hole in the ground and that there's actually a lot more to it but in any case I still think having some kind of measure of, of experience actually in field work can, can be very beneficial to to helping you in the, in the academic sphere as well.
1: Yeah and I think I listened to um, Andy Gardner's podcast with you talking about theory and, and uh, field archaeologists are really wary of it mm. and um, would sort of retreat from any idea that it might be entering into their sphere of activity but of course it does and, and things like our DUA which we still use at MOLA, the single-context recording system, was a theoretical idea at the beginning, and it's now practical application. So if we, if we are going to update and upgrade and, and drag ourselves a bit further into the present, then I don't see any reason why we can't have academic input bit into that, certainly, because some people think very deeply about this kind of stuff and we don't normally get time to do that. So we should mm. be working with people who have interesting ideas about how, how differently we could do excavation as well.
0: Yeah, So, because you've also recently, I don't know the best way to term it, was it like a kind of residency or something at yeah. Cambridge in yeah. terms of, what what did that involve?
1: Then? Field archaeologist in Residence is a really great scheme that the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research, which is part of the Archae- Department of Archaeology at Cambridge, run. Um, and it is precisely aimed at either people like me who work in commercial, if we can use that term, we're not that commercial. We don't make loads of money, but you know what I mean? That's the way that we look. Contracting, I suppose we call it that. To so go and do a bit of research they wouldn't normally get to do. Or it's aimed at academics who want to look at some commercial data, for example, so study something that they, they wouldn't get their hands on normally. So it, that, the whole thing was intended to bring the two sides together, and it's, it did really do that when I was there, certainly. To have uh, weeks to sit in the library is a luxury mm-hmm. that I would never, ever have. Maybe one day on a project I'd get to go and sit in the library. But it was a real, it was really luxurious, actually, and really interesting to be in the different different environment, and it's going to continue on, that scheme. Okay. So there'll be more field archaeologists and residents at Cambridge yeah. ongoing, yeah.
0: Certainly a way of, as you were saying, bringing the two worlds even closer together.
1: Yeah, uh, and the university sector, as you know, are always really keen to... See what's going on in the field, see what people are thinking about, see which way um, we want to go, or we're thinking of going, or we're being challenged to go. The big infrastructure projects are really challenging in terms of programme restrictions. They're they're becoming much more short, they're becoming much shorter, the programmes, even though the money's there, the time isn't always there now. So we need to think... Cleverly about how we record things, what we record, whether we're going to dig everything, for example, mm. stuff that really challenges our, our perception of what rescue archaeology actually is. So that's why universities can help with that as well, I think. Yeah.
0: So take me right back to the start. So how has it, it you came to be in the world of archaeology?
1: Well, I, I always... I always say that I because <laughs> I grew up in the West country, so we had a lot of um archaeologies all around you really there are lots of hill forts and um Roman roads and Dorchester is a Roman town obviously, and it's kind of seeped in, I guess, and I had a really great history teacher at school as well who although he didn't do ancient history at all, it was mainly industrial revolution and onwards the the way that people some people are talented enough to bring history to life, I think, and that was what spurred it really, the interest in it. And yeah, and I went to Bournemouth and did a degree, and then got a three week contract Hmm. digging. And here I am, still here.
0: Yeah, yeah, those things kind of keep on rolling, do Yeah, they do.
1: Well, you, you never know where you're going to be in 20 years when you're 21, do you? So? No, no, absolutely
0: <laughs> no. I mean, God, if you'd said to me, this summer coming will be 10 years since I graduated from Reading. Wow. If you'd said to me 10 years ago I would have had a PhD in be lecturing, wow. I'd have been like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> me? No. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy how all these things kind of pan out over over time. What, what have been some of the highlights for you over the, the course of... of Time commercial. I mean, you said Bloomberg, the Bloomberg excavation was top three. What, what were some of the others?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's only not number one because we dug um, the waterfront in in the city two years ago next to the Tower of London and we had medieval waterfront structures. We also had Roman waterfront structures which were stunning uh, to look at, really, really well preserved. Fa- fantastic massive oak timber waterfront, quays. The late Roman riverside wall was there. We didn't expect to find it, but it was it was on that site. So multi-phase Roman waterfront was a really stunning thing to look at, and that that matches Bloomberg almost for the beauty of the archaeology. You know, the sort of monumental scale of it all, Uh, and the timbers from that waterfront were stamped in the Roman period on all faces. Something to do with the wood that the timber merchant maybe or something, which is really interesting. Um, So that was a really good one. And then loads of, I mean, I, I, I did lots of really interesting prehistory in the West Country back in the day, Bronze Age, barbed and tanged arrowheads in pits and all that kind of thing, some really fantastic burial sites I've worked on. Roman burials in the city have been really great, really interesting, um, grave goods and all that kind of thing. So it's a mixture, really. Mainly the Roman city, though, is where the highlights have been, to be honest. Mm, okay.
0: I have interest, just on the note of burials, I was having this discussion recently with people because there's this debate ongoing at the moment regarding excavations and things like, now obviously we have social media Mm. uh, and people where they take a picture of of a skeleton or remains and Mm. then put it on social media. Do you have any kind of thoughts about that? If you're like running a site, would you be okay with somebody doing that? Or would you be like, no, I don't think that's going to...
1: No, I wouldn't let them do it. And Mm. I think that... um, I heard a really interesting talk by Jane Sedell the other day. She's the Ancient Inspe- Inspector of Ancient Monuments for London and she was talking about burials along the Thames <clears throat> from Neolithic onwards, skulls and whatever. And she said at the very beginning that we need to remember that these people were once living and if they, if you find her, we found prone burials from the Roman period with their hands behind their back. You know, that's actually quite disturbing to think yeah. about how that person met their end. And it's interesting archaeologically to dig them up and find out and then read books about it and interpret it. But... Um, we do need to remember that that, that was a person, I think. Uh, I'm not ghoulish about it, no. <clears throat> or religious at all, but um, but there is a respect for other humans, I think, that we need to remember.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I, mean, I, I don't know, I find it a bit, a bit uncomfortable when I see people post stuff like that. Yeah. I understand. From an archaeologist's perspective, y- you're obviously going to get quite excited, mm. but then there is also a side to it where you're a little bit like... Maybe you want to just keep mm. this excitement within, within within house as part exactly. of like your professional. Well, I mean, because that is is that case of you know what is that professional or not? But yeah, I, I know those kind of questions I think are quite interesting just because also as well where I do things like teach ancient history, mm. and sometimes you tell people about stuff from ancient history and you can make them laugh, but also as well the actually what you're telling them could be a story from a war or yeah. something where people have died. Mm. And it's very strange how that that sort of distance over time completely Mm. removes the human factor of it. And you almost have to kind of double-check yourself and be like, oh, actually, this actually is something that happened. And it had a really negative effect on people. And it's, you know, those those kind of questions, I suppose, like, it's all that kind of of, ethical part of Mm. of what we do. And, you know, the kind of numbing of time, almost. Uh, So when I was talking to Zina Kamash about this, uh, about monuments and how, you know, people go to the colosseum and take lots of selfies mm. and people also do it at places like the holocaust memorial yes, in they berlin do. and it's strange how you you could say it's, it's, it's odd in the sense that more you know all the people that died at the colosseum and compared to say the 9/11 mm. monument yeah. it's it's you know comparable loss of life that mm. people will have been executed in the colosseum mm. but because it's 2000 years ago it seems much more acceptable i'm not saying it's wrong to take a selfie at the Colosseum, but i just eat yeah. uh, those kind of que- those questions kind of interest me actually uh, i've realized in recent time about how over time we if something happens 2000 years ago or even 500 years ago we can kind of talk about it and detach ourselves mm. when it's in recent memory even if it's not in within our lifetimes but in the last kind of couple of generations it's it's we have a different very different take on it which i just find in, it's just interesting how we kind of process those things
1: yeah and mary Beard, um who i'm quite a fan of most people are i think um she she always says that ancient world was horrible to live in and she wouldn't want to have gone back to any period in the ancient world apart from maybe for an hour to have a look and then come back quickly to her her modern life and i think that's so kind of says it all really that we're it's interesting to think about it and and try and empathize on how it might have been but of course you never can because that it's, it's so different and so grim for most people probably a lot of yeah. the time that it's, we shouldn't over-glamorise ancient yeah. Rome and all these things, you know. It's
0: interesting though. I mean, <clears throat> that I suppose in terms of... I can understand that from perspective of ancient Rome and like, even if you go back to the countryside, rural areas at a are time, yeah. cases, disease would be more rife and, and you know people's quality of life. But there are... I sp- I, I've come across questions before and about how... One of the things that we can't really do in archaeology or the study of history is actually determine if people were happier in the past or not. No. Which I find, I, I also find a very really interesting question about that idea of happiness, yeah. and because obviously we look back at those things in terms of the way that we live now. Yes. But if you actually were at the time, you didn't have that kind of context of it. Mm. It was just where you lived. It is very interesting about generally were people happier in the past, uh, which is I don't think is a, I don't think is a question we can ever answer. But it's it is it just is an interesting kind of theoretical mm. question about how times have changed and do people, are people happier now or were they happier in the past? I suppose because on the flip side of that, people always have that kind of idea of, oh, things were better in the good old days. Mm. Although the good old days never really existed. No. They're usually a creation in people's minds where they look back with mm. some rose-tinted glasses, mm. which is kind of <laughs> apt for the times that we live in now in particular, I think, people, some people want to get, wanted to go a bit backwards. But how has... How has the world of commercial I'll get my words out? The world of commercial archaeology changed in your time. In it, do you think it's changed substantially, or do you think it's-
1: yes, it, uh, yes, it has? And um, I first started digging paid in 1995, so it was just after the sort of PPG sixteen had come in, where developers were obliged to pay for their archaeology. Before that, it had been um, largely sort of gentlemen's agreements and voluntary that sort of stuff um, paid for by the state mainly and in the intervening years since 95 and now we are really embedded in the planning process and we I say this all the time but we we use the legal framework within which we work to justify our, our time our profession really um, and I think we've lost what we had before a bit of it which was the idea that we were there for other reasons other than just to fulfill a planning condition on a on mm. a development um, and, and we should be able to Persuade people better about the other reasons that were there. So, learning about the past or the culture, or telling people where we've been in London, particularly, is a really interesting case study for the development of urban centres and all that kind of thing. So, I think we've become more rigid in our approach to archaeology. That's certainly happened, and then loads of other terrible things that have happened, like a lack of <clears throat> investment in field work um, as a as a specialism. I think probably which we may have had before, not that I was around before, but I, I don't think we do that particularly now. You know, as well as I do, that it's very short-term, very mm. pathetic, you move around a lot if you're young, perhaps. Um, it's a hard job, I think, being a digger these days.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's very uh, very labour-intensive and, mm. and say, short contracts. And Do you think as well that the public perception of archaeology shapes how commercial archaeology or developer-funded archaeology works. I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, about universities is there's perhaps, and I was discussing this a bit earlier, actually, before we started recording about a kind of a pendulum swing between things like, for example, archaeology and ancient history. Ar- ancient history and classics are very much big at the moment. Mm. And that, I think, is reflective of people like Mary Beard, uh, Michael Scott, mm. these people on TV that are mainly from, yeah. from that that sphere. Whereas if you went back like 10, 20 years ago when Time Team was big, mm. I think people were more on the the archaeology end of the spectrum. Now, you know, obviously those two things are not mutually exclusive, mm. and um, there is a tremendous amount of overlap. But even still, that the back in the days of, of when Time Team was big, obviously now there are things like digging for Britain, but I think Time Team itself was quite a big cultural phenomenon. Yes, I think
1: um, it was as well. and
0: it also didn't come too long after after Indiana Jones no, as exactly. well. Yeah. And I think these things have have an impact. You. Do you feel that at all in any way?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing that we we lack now um, is a consistent number of undergraduate archaeology degrees that study British archaeology. Actually, mm. not that not that I'm trying to say British archaeology for British people or anything like that, but I'm trying to say that if we are encouraging people to go into it as a profession, then there's a certain degree of responsibility on academia to to teach people about what it, they might be doing when mm. they when they leave university. So my degree was British prehistory and um, and Roman. Largely. So I, I didn't know much, but I knew more than if I'd done Near Eastern or South American and then came into British commercial archaeology. Um, I don't know how we'd go about that, because obviously there's not the funding available to, to fund British research projects yeah. like there is to go abroad and do nice, sunny... I don't blame people for rather working abroad when they're undergraduates, obviously. The, classics, the growth in classics is an interesting thing, though, isn't it? Because Andy Gardner has said recently that the number of people doing archaeology degrees has dropped off a cliff. Mm. Um, And anthropology and classics are both now more popular. And we need to somehow claw that back because archaeology is not only a degree for archaeologists. It's a brilliant, all-round, analytical, theoretical, creative degree as well. Mm. Um, And I think we need to convince people about that. So I I think that you're right, though. The classicists on TV have influenced people in thinking that they could study it. Certainly, and Mary Beer particularly, because she's not a Cambridge... Don in the traditional way that we think of Cambridge dons, um, mm. has been really positive, but we need an archaeological equivalent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think that I think that's true. I talk to people, um, particularly like a number of my friends. Um, some of whom went to university, some didn't go to university. But there seems to be a general idea that they're like you just dig stuff out of the ground, don't you? That's yes, basically what you do. And yes. like, it's not really. Actually, what archaeology is, mm. you know, archaeology is you know the study of the human past through material remains. But that doesn't that doesn't mean you just sit in a field all the time and, and do nothing else. Mm. You know, and and it, even among some of the students that we have, because they do archaeology, joint involve things. There seems to be there actually does seem to be sometimes a level of confusion amongst them. Uh, one of my students was saying to me that she was like she didn't want to do an Iron Age module because she was like I'm not really into archaeology but she did Roman Britain <laughs> and I was like that's essentially not yeah. too too much of a different mm. different area of focus and she was like yeah but the Roman Britain module is an ancient history one and I was like but... well we use ancient history, but as you've seen, there is a tremendous amount mm. of archaeology here, and none of the texts that we use are really produced in this country, apart mm. from things like, you know, the Warbrook tablets. But you know, Tacitus and Cassius Dio. I mean, Tacitus certainly never even came here. You know, mm. a lot of reconstructing uh, what Roman Britain was like is done through archaeology, particularly as the vast, vast majority of people lived in the countryside, yeah. not even in towns. But it's very interesting how she had this perception that. She was like, oh, if I did the Iron Age module, she was like, would I have had to go stand in a field? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> No. And I was like, that's not it. But it, it, it does seem to be a, a perception of what archaeology is and, and trying to get yeah. them to understand that actually the definition of archaeology <clears throat> is much broader than what they necessarily think it is. I think that's probably not just that particular student or students in general, but a much kind of wider mm. um, view of it in, in the in, in the wider world as well. But as you say yeah, just I don't know I think these things kind of come around a bit in cycles as well I think that there'll come a point where classics and anthropology will dip and archaeology will pick mm. back up again mm. um, but we're just going through one of those dips at the moment
1: yeah I think we are we, we always when I talk to the public or non, non-archaeological people that's the right way to say it I always describe archaeology as a study of people really because I know that anthropology and everything is, has its similarities great similarities but archaeology is a different way of doing it I think and the the idea that that Roman Britain would be a, a classical or an ancient historical module is actually really interesting because we have a massive gap in our knowledge as, as archaeologists um, myself included of, of classics actually hmm. and that's a bit that we really need to learn about and I I don't know how maybe I should go and do classics A level or, or something <laughs> just just to get my head around what they what the texts do say about Roman Britain because we don't learn that
0: yeah I mean it's fascinating in terms of I, I guess it's all a perspective thing in the ancient world but for example if you read Suetonius' his Life of Claudius he glazes over the conquest of Britain very quickly mm-hmm. he's not that bothered actually most of the ancient authors people like Cicero when he was writing when Julius Caesar came here they just didn't really care they no. were they were. I mean Cicero describes Britain as somewhat generally is there's nothing there for us to celebrate or be basically bothered about <laughs> he's like it's not bad but it's not Great. Yeah. There, there's a general indifference, and I, I, one of the things I've kind of learned is that there's this kind of vibe from the centre of the Roman world of Britain, not throughout the entire Roman period, but quite often, particularly in earlier periods, of them all just being a little bit like, "Is this really worth it? Mm. Is, is there really?" Mm. But it's interesting how you know if you took take a wider view of the eventually you know where we had the British Empire come along as the successor of the Roman Empire, yes. and that's how people kind of modelled it. Um, that actually Britain's role, particularly early on in the Roman world when it was annexed, was not. Was one of more of a headache than anything. Mm. That and, and overall, there's this kind of vibe of was it really worth it? But it's, it is very interesting to get those perspectives of people back in Rome about Britain yeah, as a place. I think so, and
1: also to find out what was going on politically in Rome or in Gaul, which might have had some effect on what's going on in this in this country in London and Britain. I, I think that when we hear when we see massive destruction levels, I mean, obviously, booty is an, an obvious one, but there's lots going on in the second century in London. Lots of lots of um, fires and Mm -hmm. there's a obviously there's population decline because of the plague and all this other stuff that goes on that that unless you read papers about you're not going to find from the archaeological record necessarily all you're doing is digging the archaeology up and you then need to go and look at the historical text to find to help explain what you found and that's another gap in my knowledge really that Mm -hmm. I've had to kind of run to catch up with and and also the um well, the civil wars and everything else—they would have had an impact on on Britain as well. Defensive wars and things going up that we really should be able to talk about quite, quite, uh, quite easily, and we and we don't. Yeah, we don't have that knowledge.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, particularly, I think in the the sort of the end of the third century, when you have Carousius, who sets up sets himself up as an emperor in Britain mm. alongside the other tetrarchs, he doesn't want to like take Britain out of the empire. He wants it to be. He just wants to be recognised alongside them, and then they reconquer Britain. But we only have these, like, snapshots of what <coughs> actually happened, mm. even in the textual evidence. It's And it's all from the Tetrarch's point of view rather than Carouse's mm. or anybody in Britain's point of view. And it's very interesting because it raises certain questions about they launched an invasion to retake Britain, but where is that mm. evidence archaeologically? Mm. Or, or was it a case of they literally landed, everyone just went, we give up. Yes. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, you're yeah, here yeah. now, we give up. Yeah. Um, but Thank there God is, you've
1: arrived, maybe. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's... Um, because there's a very famous image on, I think it's the Leon medallion of Constantius Chlorus marching into London mm. on horseback. And London, it's literally like the personification yeah. of London like laying down for yeah. him as he arrives. But tracing a lot of that stuff archaeologically mm. is, is very vague. But I mean, I, I keep saying this, and I, I mentioned this on the Andy podcast, but one of my favourite things about Rome, Britain, I always bring this up, is this idea that in the early third century, for about five years, the Roman Empire was basically run out of York yes. by Septimius Severus, who's from North Africa, with his two sons, who are obviously half North African, mm. but also half Syrian, mm. which I think particularly in the world yeah, yeah. is actually quite pertinent as well. But those kind of things, like, you just don't even think of, I don't no, think, no. more broadly, the idea that, you know, that that, that would have been the case. Mm. it's very interesting. Like, when you, you realise those kind of things about Britain and in it, its place in the Roman world.
1: I went to, um, to Texas a few years ago, to Houston. Um, the archaeological Institute of America invited me to do some lectures about Roman London. And I showed the, the mosaic of Septimus Severus with his sons. And they were their kids are there because Houston is sadly racially segregated, not deliberately, but just by happenstance, really. It's lots of big American cities are um, segregated and they have lots of kids who came from... Hurricane Katrina from New Orleans who were sort of refugees in their own country really, and ended up in Houston. So the schools were either largely black or largely white. And in, in the black schools, when I showed um, the Septimus Severus slide, they were really, really shocked to see someone who was in charge of things who was black. Even mm. in the Roman period, they couldn't get their head around it. One girl said, if the guy, if the empress black, then who are the slaves? You know, this shows the relevance of archaeology, I think, even to kids in Houston. Yeah, yeah. That it's not... um, The assumption that you have about power and hierarchy and things is only actually relatively recent in human history. And going back, like you say, we were run by a a North African from York, so... Yeah,
0: it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I keep saying this point over and over again as well, but one of the things I've tried to get across in the Roman Britain module this term has been that you can't study the legacy of the Roman Empire without acknowledging the fact that we're studying it in light of Britain's own imperial mm, legacy. You just you yeah. can't. It's yeah. impossible. And yeah. I don't know I don't know if some of my students sit there and get a bit sick of me banging on about the British Empire and colonialism and things mm. like that. But I'm like, this is absolutely fundamental to how you study it. If you don't have that context and you just simply end up repeating what people were saying like Francis Haverfield or Collingwood were saying yeah. you, without an understanding of the times in which they produced their work. And, and the recurring effect that has... Because it is a ripple effect that carries mm. on. As we were saying before we started recording, there, those <laughs> ripples are still being felt now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stronger in some areas than others. But um, you can't you can't study the Roman world without doing that. Mm. You have to acknowledge the fact that people's... The models that they construct of the Roman world are built out of their own experiences in their own background and particularly you know, Roman archaeology in this country became a thing essentially in the midst of the British Empire yeah. and that's had a massive effect on it and we are very much still trying to extrapolate that from, mm. from extrapolate the Roman archaeology from that, those those views mm. that obviously there's been tremendous moves away from it but but no it's, I just find that very very fascinating but miss um, was saying to Andy like you don't that's where particularly theory comes into it and you're just like that light bulb moment goes on where you see the importance of those those approaches and how how they really have a fundamental effect on how you approach the yeah. archaeology.
1: Definitely. There's a really great paper that Martin Millett wrote in the front of the Oxford handbook, I think, of Roman Britain, where he talks about the history of study of Roman Britain in this country and he talks all the universities and, and who studied under who and obviously they're mainly men and they're all white and you see Durham and Oxford and, and, all the, and Cambridge as well, all the traditional centres of excellence for Roman Britain and you, at the end of it, he says, you know, this, this would have... Because he acknowledges, obviously, the, the restriction of that. And he says, wouldn't it, how different would it have been had those people been different people? You know, we'd have had a different view of and Britain, wouldn't we, if, if it had been people who weren't like them, basically. Mm. And I think that's... He acknowledges it himself. There's nothing he can do about it now, because it's happened already. But it's, it is really interesting.
0: On that kind of note how <clears> then <throat> would you like to see things change in the coming i mean what are there are there any sort of aspects of, of archaeology that you would like to see change in, in coming years or to, like or, or that we're kind of on the path towards that you'd like to see carry on
1: well in terms of the profession we are the charleston institute for archaeologists obviously our professional body have um there are moves afoot. There's a working group and there's, there's special interest groups and everything to try and drag us into the 21st century in terms of representation of, of people. So um, a London employer, for example, would better represent the demography of London, and um, it would be different for a Cornwall employer. But nevertheless, we should all still endeavour to represent the society within which we work. And I think that would be a really positive move. How we do it, of course, um, is multifaceted and really complicated but we are trying to get there. And that's in terms of cultural diversity of the people that do the archaeology. Um, and I think there's interesting things at some universities as well, aren't there, where, they, where they're encouraging views from other other parts of the world. There's all the thing about decolonising um, museums, which is really interesting. I think Pitt Rivers are really going for that in a big way. Of all the museums that should be there, of course, that lead the way in that, because the museum is largely... Um, collected in a, in a very odd antiquarian way. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's a hard one. Um, I think that we... It, I can only really speak for my little corner of archaeology, which is the contracting arche- sector. And I think that we need, to, we need to be really proactive in recruitment and getting university students. And we know that they're di- more diverse than, than the people that enter the professions, or the undergraduate departments and places like Reading and UCL um, are far more mixed than we are and we need to go and talk to the students and tell them why archaeology is a good job
0: mm. yeah,
1: and if they want to come and do it with us for a while.
0: Yeah. Because there's also I was going to ask because there's the quite a recent movement. Is it the respect? You know, yeah. In um, that's mainly what well, in the what well, in the world of archaeology. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that at all. You...
1: Yeah, well, that's partly why the um, this, the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists has started this this movement. Really, I mean, it didn't start off with cultural diversity as, an, as a priority, although obviously it is a priority. It started off as a reaction to the Me Too movement in the press mm. and the fact that there's lots of work done in America in academic circles and also in this country as well now about harassment in academia which is, is um, apparently endemic and needs to be approached somehow. And also because archaeologists in this country work on building sites and building sites tend to be fundamentally unsuited to young mm. women particularly straight out of university um, who through no fault of their own are unused to dealing with groups of blokes. Yeah. who are older than them and have lived a different life than them. And it is a real challenge. So we are, we, the, the Respect Group and CIFA and Prospect the Union are trying to come to some sort of way in which we can protect people, we can punish people that do wrong and we can provide a better future for everybody, really.
0: Yeah. I always remember working, actually, on the, on the Book site mm. and there was, you know, a colleague there was picked up like, a big piece of timber that she was moving and I, I was going past and she was like can you just grab that other bit for me so I picked it up for her and we walked past, and we walked past this builder who had a massive go at me because he was like why are you letting her carry oh, no. the timber <laughs> and she was just like what's his problem yeah. like, but it's, it's interesting those kind of things like you know they, those kind of issues aren't always it's well, it's kind of in your face but it's more in my face than her face but you know what I mean Like no, uh, that's that still that uh, very much like uh, you know, there, was, there was like no problem like she was just like this isn't an issue what's, it, what's he
1: but he that relationship there that's a good example of how complex it is because he's trying to be nice yeah, back yeah. he was he's patronising but he didn't want to be and he wasn't insulting her he was thinking that she might need a hand and, and that's another layer of of um as I say, complexity really, that we need to try and navigate through because most men would like would rather help a woman and see her struggle, and I understand mm. that's a good thing, and we don't want to get rid of that. That's a nice thing. That's that's a good colleague helping somebody else. We need to get rid of the patronising and the offensive and the humiliating and all that kind of stuff. And but it's all really closely linked. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I know, because he was one of those situations where it's like sort of quite subtle. Like you yeah, say, like he, he clearly, clearly meant well, but it was slightly like. Derogatory towards her because yeah, he was suggesting course. that she couldn't manage when yeah. she clearly could, yeah. and he's almost like, then he like I'm the person that he addressed about mm. it, while she's kind of sort of standing there a yes. little bit like I am here, like yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, you can have a conversation with me about it. But yeah. it was you know, it's, <clears throat> as you say, it's very complex. But um, yeah, I mean, do you think that's that? Generally speaking, though, is something in archaeology that's become better over the years, or is that all...
1: well? I, I don't think it's become better. I think archaeologists themselves, hopefully, are more um, open to dealing with people of all capabilities and genders and things are on site the Bloomberg one's a good example because we were the only um we were the only contractor on site with any women really Mm -hmm. there was a couple of engineers maybe surveyors but we used to I used to go to regularly go to meetings with 40 other people black cat supervisors and I was the only woman at the at those meetings apart from the nurse and it is really um intimidating actually especially as, as an archaeologist you're normally giving them bad news about their program yeah, yeah. so not only are you are you alone female voice, but you're also the the person who's probably going to piss them off the most because <laughs> so it doesn't help and actually male colleagues of mine have said exactly the same thing that they realize that it must be doubly hard because they get the hassle for being an archaeologist as well because we're seen as vaguely kind of fey in the way airy fairy academic types you know on one of the projects somebody somebody was heard to say you lot with your double degrees you know like uh-huh. it's, it's not a good thing Yeah. on a, yeah. On a building site like always to have an education um, so that's another facet to this whole struggle really I mean a struggle makes it sound really noble it's not noble at all but it's, it's just a hassle you know
0: yeah yeah well I like, hopefully it's something that as time progresses yeah. does does improve oh, well
1: I think you no know, I mean road. we are it, it, it slowly is actually and the big projects particularly have consider it contractor schemes and things and they are if if people complain to them about things they will sort it out and we had a couple of lorry um, machine drivers kicked off a couple of projects I've worked on because they were rude or Facebook women on site and were inappropriate and whatever and we just got rid of them they were removed and that's fine Yeah, that's way to deal with it really
0: yeah well I think zero tolerance is, Absolutely, is, is yeah. the best way forward yeah. in those situations cool alright so as you say you're off back on off on a on a project at the start of next year but Anything to anything to advertise at all at the moment? Anything in terms of publications coming?
1: Um No, I mean there's the we can await the Bloomberg volumes <laughs> <laughs> with bated breath.
0: You can get the the archaeology
1: of Bloomberg. Oh the archaeology on, one online. is free, that's yeah, fab yeah. actually, yeah. I mean yeah. that's that's a really good introduction even for archaeologists I think to read because not everyone wants to read a whole volume on detailed narrative and cataloguing of finds and things. Mm. So no, I know I would um, yeah that's really great actually
0: interesting story as well I think because of the recent history of the site as yeah. well in terms of Grimes' excavations the history of the temple the kind of the news uh, that it generated at the time discovery as well it's a story that it's not just an interesting site from an archaeological perspective but modern history oh. as well obviously they had the, the oral history project of oh. Mola as well about people that were at the site when it was first excavated
1: yeah that was a really magic thing actually I think that that really added to the value of the whole project so for us as well as the developers and the people that went there in bloomberg the lady who was called Mithra after yeah. her visit I mean what a lovely story and she remembered there's another woman there who went as a child and her view her memory of it in her mind you have a mind's eye as a child was with her hand up because she was holding her dad's hand and all that kind of stuff it really really evocative and i think that the study of the value of archaeology in the recent past um is really important. My family are Londoners and my, my granny lived in the Blitz and everything and it's it is part of our history that we still have people that will remember that. Mm. So it's really valuable, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good example of the impact that archaeology yeah, has on definitely. people. The number of people that I think have gone on who were present at the excavation who came to visit it that have had some lasting involvement in archaeology, yeah. whether it would just be like from a purely interest perspective, mm. like going to museums, going to sites um, I think it's quite a substantial number of people. Mm. that It had a big effect on because obviously it was very emblematic in the the post Blitz period yeah. of kind of London re-emerging out of the out of the debris. Um,
1: yeah, and the developers, even though you know we can moan about the fact that they dismantled the temple and built it wrong and everything, the building that ended up on that site, Temple Court and Bucklesbury House, Bucklersbury is a medieval street name, so they kept that, and Temple Court because it was over the temple. And they had Mithras, they had the plans of the temple in the carpets in the hallway, and they had the Hutton panels showing Roman London in the, in the foyer. And apparently, there were other bits of Mithraic iconography around mm-hmm. that 1960s tower block. Yeah. So I think it's all really, it does go to show how these things can permeate even, even horrible 60s buildings, you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very positive note to end on <laughs> as well. <laughs> all right, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. thanks for listening to coffee and circuses the roman poet Juvenal once said people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses but if i'm going to talk to somebody i'd rather do it over coffee than bread you can find me david walsh on twitter at d underscore j underscore walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses@gmail.com. at gmail.com that's with a full and don't forget you can subscribe rate and review the show on itunes and spotify big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants the theme tune is La Kahora by Royal Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org and in the background right now you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal originally by John Williams but you all know that, which is available on YouTube thanks again for listening and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a diocletian